Corinthians chapter We're going to be in the, uh, for a few weeks looking at one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. There are 58 verses. I won't preach all of them this morning. But uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 11, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians as we uh, talk about good news for a world that badly needs it. Good news for a world that badly needs it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning there with verse number 1. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am not the least of the apostles, who am not worthy Excuse me, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's pray again. Father, We are thankful that you hear and answer prayer. We're thankful for the incredible uh, love that you show for us, God, and for this truth that you've revealed to us that you came here for us and that you rescued us. And so we pray today that you'll just remind us and make clear to us again this gospel message that we've come to believe and embrace and, and help us as we live out its truths among our family and God, uh, as we proclaim good news to those who, who need to see that there is good news, we love you, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it doesn't uh, take very much to, of media to get the impression that there's a lot of bad news in the world, and uh, now it's political se- season, so the commercials rotate in all the time, reminding us of how bad you know everything is, and uh, we're in the middle of recession and viral mutations and social division and flooding and mass shootings and all that is horrible news and it, it uh, is in our face all the times uh, all the time. Paul Harvey, if you remember him uh, from long ago, said, "In times like these, it helps to remember that there have always been times like these, but we're not so sure. You know, we live in our time and." Sometimes we have uh, historical nearsightedness. You know, we forget that uh, bad things happen to bad people uh, in the past as w- or to good people in the past as well. So one thing that everyone can agree on, though, is that we're in a world desperately in need of good news. And in the scripture, it's interesting that the apostles, when they described the message that they uh, came to proclaim, described it as good news, the, the uh, word evangelism comes from the idea that we're proclaiming we're heralds of good news and so when we look at the idea of good news as a description of what the gospel is 
Here's the reason that it's good news is because you had a sentence of death that God commuted. Imagine being on death row and being told, hey, you're forgiven, freed, and released. And that's what the Bible says the gospel did. It took your sentence of death and my sentence of death and it commuted it and and set us free. The Bible teaches that it's good news because you've been acquitted of guilt. It's not that we weren't guilty. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And our experience tells us the very same thing. We flesh that out and live it out all the time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God uh, acquitted us. He sees us as though we were not guilty because of what Jesus came and did. And he shed his blood and forgave our sins, and, and that's why it's good news. The list of legitimate offenses that were contrary to us, the Scripture says, he scrubbed out that handwriting of offenses. That's, what, that's why it's good news. People that were uh, powerless, he came and empowered and gave strength to. And that's why we have good news. And God who could have crushed us instead embraced us. And, and that's why it's called good news. Because the God who by all rights justly could crush us instead embraced us and loved us. I like, this isn't a very Calvinistic song, I don't think. It's in, in the old hymnals, but it says, Jesus included me. Yes, he included me. And uh, I, I like it. It says, when the Lord said, whosoever, he included me. That's good news, right? That when the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that includes you. That if we call on the name of the Lord, we'll be saved. And so the, the apostles believed good news and then we have this good news to share and proclaim so as we look at this passage it's it's basically some someone described this passage as the gospel in a nutshell the gospel in a nutshell and i think it really does give us the components of good news and so that's what we're going to look at together and the first idea in this passage that we see is that it gives us assurance of good news in the first couple of verses here Paul says, I declare to you the good news, this gospel which I proclaimed or preached. Uh, Both times it's the same idea of evangelism. This is the evangel, he says, with which I evangelized you. This is the gospel that came to you, the good news. And and so we see here this assurance that the good news has come to us. It's revealed. God's given it to us. So we've been looking at all these complicated ideas over several weeks of uh, charismatic gifts and confusion and chaos in congregational life. And he says, here, here basically what you have is a recentering, a reassessment. What is it that the church is about when it comes together? He says, it's about good news. This is what, why we exist is because there's a world that needs to know that this message that we proclaim can transform and change their life. He says, first of all about it, it was preached to you. (coughs) Somewhere, if you're a follower of Jesus, in your journey, someone proclaimed to you good news. Someone brought to you this message of hope and salvation. I remember in my own life, 1985, probably one of the worst years of my life where my bad decisions accumulated, and uh, I was living in a lot of brokenness. And for 
Christmas that year, my sister gave me a Bible, which was a gift I probably didn't appreciate very much at that time. In it, she had written a personal letter to me that I still have at home. And basically in it was what we would call the Roman road or, you know, the, what the scripture says about how to be saved. And so my sister loved me enough to say, hey, this in your situation is precisely what you need. Here is good news. Your life is dark and bleak, but here's good news. The good news is that you can start again. You can be forgiven. And so my parents, as I grew up, uh, I would say sometimes we were sort of nominal Christians. My grandfather was a pastor, but we went through spells where we were in church and out of church. But often... I was in situations to hear the good news proclaimed, vacation Bible school or uh, church services. And so I grew to look at my faith journey as kind of an accumulation of having heard this message until at a point I internalized it and received it into, uh, into my own life. But Paul says here, this is the message that was declared to you so that at some point we heard the good news and we listened to it. He because that's the next thing he says, and which uh, you received. You received this message. There was openness in your life. And, and so God pursues us. The, uh, one writer, I think Francis Thompson is his name, described God as the hound of heaven. He says he pursues us. He, cha he chases us. And basically he wants us. He woos us to himself. But, it, but we also have to be open to his, this message of, of hope. Faith comes by hearing, the Bible says, and hearing by the word of God. So it, faith is, is that internalizing of this truth that we've uh, heard, this message that's been proclaimed. And it corresponds with surrender and need and repentance, and they intersect with the mystery of God's willing activity. God's willing to save us. But at some point in our life, that surrender has to be true about us, too, that we received it, that it, as it came to us, we were open to that message, and we said yes. And I've probably shared this before, but for me, it was within not too uh, long of a time of my sister giving me a Bible. Within the next couple of years, I was at my parents, and my mom shared the good news with me, and I prayed and opened my life up to Christ. I said yes, I surrendered. And that's what he says here about the gospel. He says there has to be some point in our life where we say yes to the good news. We receive it for it to uh, change us. And he says then in which we stand. The gospel is our standing. And I, there are two aspects to this, I think, actually, when we think about standing. Because it sounds conditional here. Look at verse 2. It says, uh, by which you also you're saved, if it puts an if in there. <coughs> what we would say is that's a conditional clause, right? If is a conditional word. He says, if you uh, continue to stand, unless you believed in vain. He says, in which you stand, uh, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you uh, believed in vain. So he holds out the prospect that it's possible to hear the word and believe futilely is the idea so we stand i think the scripture says in this sense the ephesians 6 put on the whole armor of god 
and having done all to stand sort of standing. So as a follower of Christ, I withstand the evil day by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by putting on the helmet of truth, by girding my waist about with the belt of uh, truth, with shodding my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the Bible says, taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of truth. There's a sense in which I withstand the evil day by taking up the whole armor of, of God. But there's a sense in which the, this kind of standing is God's power that keeps us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says that you're kept by the power of God. And that kind of keeping, the word means to garrison about. In other words, there's nobody big enough, there's nobody in the world bad enough to come and pluck you out of God's hand. So he keeps us. But the condition that it states here is still true. If we uh, hold fast to this word, and, and he says, unless our faith has been, uh, been vain, which is worth thinking about, we stand in this sense of withstanding, but also we're kept by God. But it, what it doesn't mean is that professing believers might not fall away. Professing believers might fall away. In other words, they might proclaim a faith that has no uh, authenticity in their life. So we remember how Jesus gave us the parable of the soils, and he says that the word of God came to people. It was scattered, and as that was pro uh, proclaimed, some of it fell on what? On hard ground, it says. It fell on hard ground. It was packed hard. And the idea was as they scattered seed, the, uh, the root couldn't go very deep. And when the hot sun came, it scorched it, and it was not fruitful, it says. And then it describes some seed that fell on rocky ground and some uh, that fell among uh, thorns and was choked out. But it says in the lives of those people, there was a, if we look at it, a religious impulse. It started out as something that, but then... Eventually, it proved to be what? Futile, the scripture, like it says here. They believed, but their belief didn't, uh, wasn't, didn't eventuate in perseverance into eternal life. So a tenet of, of uh, historic Christian faith is per the perseverance of the saints. And the idea is that authentic believers persevere. But why? Because God causes them to persevere. We're kept by the power of God. The question then is, is the faith that a person professes authentic? Is it life-changing? Is it life-altering? Well, there's only one <clears throat> way to know that, and that's a process of time. If our faith is authentic, we persevere because God causes us to persevere. So he says the gospel that's proclaimed to you saves you unless it was a kind of a passing fad, unless it was something that a person did because their cousin did it, like me. That was what I did as a kid, about seven years old at a, a church in Twin City, Georgia, after vacation Bible school one year. My cousin walked forward in a public worship service, and I, I, I admire that cousin as much as anybody, you know, and I went forward also. But the thing that I knew is that for the rest of my adult life, I didn't change at all. My behaviors didn't uh, reflect the reality that Jesus was Lord of my life. And so we're, our, the gospel saves us unless it's something like of that nature. 
you know, uh, unless it was nothing more than a religious impulse that didn't have an internal match in reality. And many times people will have a religious upbringing, but they've not experienced true life altering faith. You know, sometimes we hold out hope for people that their salvation is authentic, but there's really nothing in their life to indicate to us that it is. And so we don't need to, uh, I think what we need to do is persevere in prayer for uh, people like that, but not say, hey, I know this person is saved because they had some religious experience at some point. You know, we don't know. God knows their heart, but... But I think what the scripture shows us is that if uh, faith is authentic, it will sustain us and we'll be worshipers and there will be evidences that our faith is is authentic. So that conditional clause indicates, I think, that salvation is more than baptism or some outward religious activity that, you know, we could could point to, but it's a, it's a, 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 a lifestyle that happens over... Uh, the course of our experience as uh, followers of Christ. So baptism can happen in a person's life without regeneration. You know, a person could be baptized but never have experienced regeneration because regeneration is the Spirit's activity inside of us, and baptism is a evidence or a symbol of that. So regeneration is a miracle that eventuates in perseverance. So if a person experiences regeneration, again, God causes us to persevere. So it causes what Jonathan Edwards called religious affections. And Jonathan Edwards was a great thinker in the history of religion in the United States of America. But what he meant by religious affections is probably the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit. He was saying if a person really has uh, been authentically converted then the fruit of the spirit will be evident in their life what's the fruit of the spirit well we find it in galatians 5 it's love joy peace kindness goodness self-control he said he gives us a description of what the spirit manifests in the life of a person that's truly in a relationship with uh, with god and edwards called that religious affections living a repentant life you know uh always recognizing that when we stray, there's a responsibility that we have to uh, confess our sin to God and to uh, be restored in our relationship with him, renewed. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes to live inside of a person, manifests his life in us. And we're saved by grace. I like how someone said this. We're saved by grace through faith alone, That, but uh, the grace that saves, the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, it's the same thing James said when he says uh, that faith without works is what? Is dead. He says if there's no corresponding lifestyle, then we're wrong to say we have a life of faith because faith is transformational. Faith makes a difference in the life of the person who confesses it. Otherwise, he says it's just a dead confession. So that's the first idea that we see this assurance. There's an assurance that comes, but the assurance is in the uh, idea that God changes a person. He says, unless you believed in vain, uh, otherwise we'll persevere. But secondly, there's this essence of the good news that he describes in this passage. So he describes the gospel in verse 3 as being delivered or handed down. 
And so we see that the, there was a, the apostles proclaimed the same message as we've talked about before. It was handed down to us from God. It's not a human contrivance. In other words, people didn't think it up. The disciples referred to the message that they preached as the way. They didn't call it a way, did they? In fact, Christians were described as being people of the way because they believed that there was only one way to God, and that was through Christ. Uh, Peter, when he preached it uh, in, in the early days of the church's existence, said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And, of course, he was repeating the idea that Jesus himself proclaimed when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. They were saying there's only one way to God, and that is through uh, Jesus who we proclaim to you. So the gospel is handed down to us. It's not something that humans made up, and it's attested by uh, prophecy and history. In the Old Testament writings, that's how we know that people didn't make it up because of the continuity that we see between the messengers in the Old Testament and the message of, of Jesus in the New Testament. So uh, people uh, estimate that there are about 250 Old Testament citations in, in the New Testament where the speaker or the writer addresses a passage in the Old Testament, usually that refers to the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and be. And so when you read the New Testament and you see that they are quoting someone from the Old Testament, what they're really trying to do is affirm to us the continuity of this message that was in God's mind and heart all along. So there's this overarching purpose that God had in bringing a specific message to people. And you find it, for example, in Psalm 22. When you read Psalm 22, you find that Jesus quoted Psalm 22 while he was hanging on the cross. When he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting uh, the 22nd Psalm. And the scripture says things like, they'll look on him whom they pierced and the minor prophets. And then it's quoted in the New Testament as an allusion or uh, be, uh, being about Jesus. Or in Isaiah chapter 53, which we looked at here prior to Easter, and the whole passage is a psalm about the cross. And you, when you read it and you see Jesus in it, you see that God had a purpose all along that he was bringing to uh, us through messengers, through prophets, finally through his son and then through the apostles. And it really is early as Genesis chapter 3, we see the same message being proclaimed where he, he says to the serp, uh, serpent that he talks about the seed of the woman. And uh, every uh, Bible scholar says, hey, that's about Jesus, the seed of the woman, the virgin who gives birth. And he says to the serpent, he'll crush your, uh, you'll crush his heel, but he'll crush your head. You, know, you might bite him on the hill, but he's going to uh, finalize you and end you. And he's talking about Satan, and he's talking about the reality of sin and how it was conquered. And so the Bible shows us that there's this narrative that God has given to us in Old Testament and then New Testament prophecy. And then the gospel is concerned with our debt of sin. It says here in uh, the scripture I've delivered uh, to you, First of all, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. Why did Jesus die? Was he just a martyr? 
No, he died with a purpose, and that is because God is a just God. He required divine justice, and that justice was that either we had to pay for our sins or someone else did. And Jesus paid for our sins. He went to the cross for the sake of, because of our sins, not for his own, although the bystanders reviled him and accused him and treated him like a common criminal, but the truth was he was, he was the only sinless person dying on behalf of all the sinful people. And so his execution was required because of our depravity, the Bible says. Our depravity is the reason that the righteous Son of God had to be executed and died on a Roman cross. He, he is a divine judge and he requires just, justice, but thankfully the Bible also teaches that Jesus is, uh, that God is merciful and his mercy is contingent on his justice. You know, sometimes we think about mercy apart from justice, but there is no mercy apart from the satisfaction of God's justice. His justice was satisfied because Jesus Christ paid it. In the songs that we sing, Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt that every uh, single person owed. And so his mercy is love and kindness based on his own sacrifice. He took the wrath that we deserve so we could get the forgiveness that we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be forgiven. That's the, what mercy essentially is, is a gift that's given to us. But it's because Jesus paid this incredible sacrifice through his blood that he, that, and through the laying down of his, his life. God is telling a redemption story in the scripture, but first the cross. First the cross. There's no uh, path around it to receive mercy. And so Jesus came here and he gave his life for us to redeem us. But the Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. In Hebrews, it uh, cites uh, passages from the Old Testament. Without shedding of blood, they had this sacrificial system that ended because Jesus became the Lamb of God who took away the sin uh, the sins of the of the world. And so it's interesting, no matter where you go in the world, that every religious system recognizes the need for atonement of sin and guilt. It, uh, I may have shared before I had the opportunity to go to uh, Peru. And we, we stayed at uh, about 10,000 feet above sea level while we were there. And there was this mountain about 500 feet high at 10,000 feet above sea level that we went, went up. And as you walked, uh, the guide that was with us pointed out that there were these stalks that people would tie uh, knots in with their offhand uh, if they were left-handed. And it was a way in their mind of, uh, committing a work that if I can do this, it equates to God's forgiveness. It was a ritual that was really empty. Uh, we had a missionary once come to our church from Nepal who talked about the fact that in some places the uh, people would throw a pad of butter at an idol as a way of saying if the butter hits and sticks, that equates to atonement. It was like a gambling ritual and we might think, well, that seems ridiculous, know that people would have. But the common uh, theme to me as I reflected on it is that everybody everywhere recognizes I'm guilty, recognizes I need to have my guilt atoned for. And the question is, how does that happen? How do we experience 
uh, forgiveness. And Christianity is the only belief system that proposes that the deity who is the object of our worship became for us the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The Bible calls that propitiation, that he became the propitiation for our sin. Not for ours only, the Bible says, but for the whole world. Jesus died so that everyone could find hope and have uh, good news. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ uh, took on our himself our uh, payment of, of sin and guilt. And the gospel uh, story features resurrection and Really, that's what all of chapter 15 is about. All 58 verses have to do with the idea of resurrection. And the writer here says, the Apostle Paul, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. So Jesus is resurrected, and the resurrection is the reanimation of a corpse. That's what it means for a corpse to be made alive. That's uh, like the stuff of science fiction. The idea that corpses come to life, but the Bible says no. This is this, the God who created matter is also Lord over matter, and so Jesus is reanimated. He goes into a tomb, but on the third day, the Bible says he he is resurrected from the grave, and the resurrection is evidence that he's the only acceptable Savior. In Acts chapter seventeen, verse thirty-one, the Bible says there that. Uh, God has appointed a day, it says, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, it says, whom he's identified or appointed. He says he's given evidence of this by raising him from the dead. That's what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, and it says he, he's uh, given evidence of this, uh, that he's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man. He says the evidence that that man is the man as he was raised from the dead. So Jesus Christ is that person that the Bible says God will use as the standard of righteousness and that he'll judge us according. So mercy, the basis of mercy is that God's already paid for sin and what we have to do is surrender and yield and receive this uh, good gift of God's. And then the scripture shows us this uh, list of witnesses of this good news. Over and over again, the uh, claim here is that these people saw Jesus alive. And on the basis of that, uh, their testimony, their witness to us, then we have confidence that Jesus is, in fact, alive. And so he goes through and he says, then he, he was uh, seen by Peter and then by the twelve, which is the narrative we find in the Gospels, that women went first to the tomb and they didn't find, they went there to uh, anoint his body, but when they got there, they didn't find a body, right? He was gone. He had departed the tomb, and the angel says, why are you looking for the dead among the living? So Peter uh, and the other disciples rush down to the tomb. They find the same thing and are perplexed because there's no body in this grave that they went to visit. And he says he was seen by Peter. And then he says um, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. This is the only place in the Bible that this claim is made, that over 500 people saw Jesus alive. But it's here in the Bible that the Bible says, and probably uh, people speculate that it's talking about the Mount of Olives and the ascension, that just before Jesus was uh, ascended into heaven, that 500 human beings that were gathered there saw him physically, visibly alive at the Mount of Olives. And 
So the claim there is that, hey, he says some, uh, most of these people are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. In other words, here's what he's saying. You could go talk to them if you wanted to. These people are still alive. They're witnesses to this great uh, reality of the resurrection that we're claiming. And behind this, as we'll see, is the uh, problem in Corinth that some people were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. He says, no, there were 500 human beings that saw Jesus just before he ascended into heaven, if that's what it refers to. Either way, there were 500 people gathered who saw him between the time of his resurrection and his ascension. And uh, just as a kind of an aside, a uh, writer talked about the way that death is referred to here and how it refers to us or is applied to us. He says in the ancient world and really in our world too, there's not worse that, uh, much worse that people could imagine than death. He says it was the great antagonist that no one could uh, withstand. A horror is the way that death was perceived. But he said for a Christian it's become nothing more than falling asleep. Falling asleep. That's the way it's uh, described here. In, in other words, the resurrection has taken the sting out of death. And then, and then the scripture says he was seen by James. And James was not what we would call an early adapter of faith. James, it is believed here, is the brother of Jesus. He lived in the same household with him along with Jude. And so after... Uh, Jesus is resurrected, then the Bible seems to indicate that James came to be a believer in his brother. But you remember that in the gospel stories it says about uh, J James and the others, his family members, that Jesus was out uh, in his, involved in his public ministry and they said, hey, we better go collect him because he's out of his mind. That's what his family said. He's out of his mind. And then in another place, the Scripture says that uh, in John chapter 7, verse 5, they said, why don't you go into Jerusalem and do these great works? And they're basically um, sort of making fun of Jesus. And, they, and the Bible says that the reason was that even his own family didn't believe in him. But that wasn't true after the resurrection. The resurrection had monumental uh, consequences for the Christian faith and, it, and the scripture here is saying to us, it is extremely well-based and well-attested. That's what we are finding out through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is that the evidence of resurrection is powerful. That James attested to it, the brother of Jesus. After he had seen Jesus alive, he became a leader in the church. In fact, the, when you read the book of Acts, you find out that Jesus' brother, James, is sort of the central figure in the Jerusalem church. He's the one that they go to who's an, an authority. So his life is radically transformed because he came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And really that's all the Bible is saying to us here is you should do the same thing. You should do the same thing based on all this powerful evidence. All the apostles probably refers to uh, the group that was assembled at the ascension as well where it says that it just gives us this list. And then Paul says... Last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time, which probably means that he came to believe in Jesus after all the apostles had already believed, and that's the historic sequence of what happened. We remember that he was persecuting Christians, and he was on his way to Damascus, and he has a vision of Jesus, a bright light and a voice, and he's, the voice says to him, Why are you persecuting me? And he says, to him, who are you? 
he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Or that, uh, he says, I'm Jesus whom you're uh, persecuting. And he has uh, this radical transformation. And the one who had been persecuting the church began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have the, all this evidence, this, these witnesses of good news. And then lastly in this passage we see the effect of good news. How did it affect uh, Paul? That's who's speaking. He's, he describes himself, For I am the least of the apostles, whom that not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So it's interesting that the effect of the gospel on people can sometimes uh, be a feeling of unworthiness. That's how we feel sometimes. I'm not worthy of that. I don't feel worthy of this gospel. If you're in tune with yourself and aware of your shortcomings, sometimes that's the effect of the gospel on us. We feel inadequate and unworthy because, in fact, you are unworthy, right? If we're honest, that's the truth about us, is that we're deficient. The whole idea of the gospel was our deficiency, that we needed something that we didn't have. But the Bible says Jesus Christ became for us our worthiness. So now the way God sees you and the way God sees me is that I am worthy. I'm worthy because he made me worthy. Because his worth got assigned to my account. And so uh, even though we may sometimes feel, well, Paul said this about himself in his public ministry. He says, who is sufficient for these things? He said, I don't feel sufficient for this. But the other part of that, he says, but our sufficiency is Christ. I don't feel adequate. I don't feel sufficient. He says, but what makes me sufficient is Jesus Christ, his worth, his value that has been given to you and to me as a free gift. And the, so the effect of the good news, too, was that he fulfilled the sense of his calling. I think this is an interesting passage in verses 10 and 11, he says, for by the grace of God I am what I am. He recognizes that grace is the only answer for the realities about his life now, the transformation that's occurred. But he said, I labored more abundantly than they all. I wonder how everybody else felt about that. I don't know. But he says, I worked harder than everybody else. And from what we can see, historically, it appears to be the truth, right? Nobody was more vigorous and... Uh, uh, nobody traveled as extensively, was beaten as often, was shipwrecked. He gives a description of everything that happened to him in uh, 2 Corinthians. So we can see that what he was saying was the gospel and what it meant was not wasted in my life. I didn't just go on as if nothing had happened to me. And, and you know, I think about the church today and... You know, sometimes it feels as if people don't, don't, they don't get this. My life isn't supposed to just go on as if nothing has happened to me. You know, if it's true that we have been given access to this uh, a kingdom, a, a life, a, something we, we never could have deserved or earned, but now we have it, then that should have a powerful influence on who we are. And, and so when we look at what Paul says, he says this the effect of this grace was not wasted on me. So sometimes we may struggle with the sense of whether we're doing great things for God. You know, I know a lot of pastors, and my past ministry was mostly working with pastors, and I know a lot of times people struggle with that sense of, I want to do something great, but am I doing anything great? I'm not really sure. 
But, but here's what I, I think we can see is that if we do the little things day in and day out, if we live as disciples day after day after day with the people that God's brought into our life, the accumulation of that across a lifetime is a great thing. It's a great thing, and I think that's what God intends. I love uh, Psalm 90, and, uh, and it's a great prayer. The, uh, and it's the only psalm that is attributed to Moses. But it says, teach us to uh, number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I think what that's saying is, God, give me a perspective that's eternal, not temporal, not bound up in stuff that is going to go away one day, but give me an eternal perspective so that I live for things that really matter. And, I, it, you know, when I think about the great things we might do, I I said this a few weeks ago, most of our lives aren't like that. Most of our lives are laundry and yard work and punching a clock. And, but in the middle of all that, we can live as faithful people to, to Christ. And that, I think, is what answers to this question of greatness. And, you know, not that you might not do some great thing. You might. But it's, it's just as likely that God will expect just faithful, uh, faithfulness from us and the routine things that we do all the time. And, and that we're witnesses of the resurrection in those ways. Christ is the hope of the world, and we can live, you and I, so that people realize that hope has meaning to us. So this is a world where when you go home, if you were to turn on all the news channels, it, it, you'd be depressed in about 15 minutes. Full of bad news all the time. It's what their stock and trade is. But the Bible says that you and I have been, become recipients of good news, the best news. The Bible says that Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. But I'd be willing to bet that a lot of times our hearts are troubled. You know, that we're, we're anxious and we forget that God has given us incredible news, the best news. Now, one of my uh, favorite, the old CCM artist in the 90s I, is what I know the most of. There's a guy named Charlie Peacock. I don't know if anybody would even know who that guy is. But he had a great album called Everything That's On My Mind back in the 90s. And I love that. Uh, I still listen to it. But there's a song on there called Go Climb a Tree. Go Climb a Tree. <laughs> And it's a story that he tells, and he tells the story of uh, growing up in his own town. And he, he says, I uh, went up to a stranger, and I said, hey, man, is the gospel alive in you? And he says that the guy told him, go climb a tree. <laughs> and he says, you know, basically in telling the story of the song, that I went back to my little town, climbed a tree, and had a look, is the way it puts it. Climbed a tree and had a look. And then somebody else later on comes and says to him, hey, come down from the tree. And he says, thank God I'm not as sensitive as I used to be. I think I'll stay in my tree, is the, is the way he narrates song. Well, that's a sad ending, right? It's basically saying that if we're not careful, we'll get kicked around and beat up by uh, all the people around us where we've been told, hey, you've got good news. You need to be out there talking about it. You need to be proclaiming it through your life. But we might just say, I'm going to listen to everybody else and climb a tree. And I'm going to stay up there and, and, not, and not talk about this good news. Well, hopefully that's not how we, uh, how we end up. I think it's a good question to ask other people and to reflect on ourselves. Is the gospel alive in you? Is the gospel alive in you? 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I'm grateful for the scripture, for this timelessness, how it meets us sometimes in our at the time where we need to be reminded of the this message of salvation and hope and the good news that that you've given to us. And so I pray that we'll be faithful to communicate it to others.